So I need to say, um, Chuck and Carolyn, we love you. We love y'all. Holly, great to see you. Uh, so blessed by your friendship of many, many years. It's hard to believe. I'm glad you went into ministry. You don't even have the voice for radio, so I don't, you know. I don't know. But uh, um, very, very thankful our paths crossed, and we'll continue to. Um, so I have to open by reading my favorite story of all time. And my favorite story is, is told by a guy named John Ortberg, who's a pastor in California. He's too far for you to go to his church. He's not as good a minister. Chuck's a lot better. But uh, anyways, uh, so some shameless plugs there. By the way, if I sign your book and I die, it's worth 16 bucks right after that. Just telling you. So uh, Ortberg talks about when he and his wife uh, bought their first real furniture for their house. It's in his book, uh, um, The Life You've Always Wanted. Uh, they wanted to buy the re- their first furniture. They had three little children, um, and they decided to trade in their Volkswagen, um, you know, convertible, or wagon, their, the, the, the bus. And, um, and they go to this nice furniture store, and they're looking around, and they're talking with the salesman. And uh, his, his wife settles on this, this beautiful mauve sofa. And uh, the, the, the salesman looks at, looks at uh, her and says, listen, are you sure you want to get a mauve sofa? Because if a stain gets in that, you know, it's not coming out. And you've got young children. And he and his wife were totally offended. You know, they were insulted that she would do that. They were like, we know our children. We know how to discipline our children. We'll be just fine. We'll take the mauve sofa, you know. So they buy the mauve sofa. And uh, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to pick up from there what he says in the book. He says, from that moment on, we all knew clearly the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. <laughs> don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on, breathe on, look at, or think about the mauve sofa. Remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But on this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for in the day that you sit there upon, you shall surely die. (laughs) He writes, then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, lined up our three children in front of it. Laura, age four. Mallory, two and a half. And Johnny, six months. Do you see that, children, she said? That's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the, mauve, at the sofa store says, it's not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. <laughs> Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. And I knew they wouldn't because I was the one who put the red jelly stain in the mauve sofa. And I knew I wasn't saying anything. I figured I would find a safe place to confess such as in a book I was going to write maybe. There was a pastor, a youth pastor, who, uh, who somewhere in his ministry lost his job and, 
and didn't know what to do with that. And he started to think about what it means to fail. And as he connected and networked with other pastors, he realized that a lot of pastors experience failure. Actually, we all have. And so he started this conference that meets in Cincinnati called the Epic Fail Conference. And he gathers pastors and people in ministry who are going through and experiencing the failures that they have, that they have gone through. And, and he writes this. He wrote this in an article that I read. It's, it's quoted in the book. But he says, We are stumbling friends of Jesus, whom he loves anyway. We are the discarded scraps that somehow in his deep and expansive grace, God uses to nurture and grow, to scatter and sprinkle over a broken world. I believe that the deepest deception that we succumb to as people who follow Jesus happens when we refuse to believe or are afraid to believe that God is a father that we can come to in the reality of our brokenness. When we look at him and we, and we say that if he only knew the real me, if he only saw what I was really all about, we, we parse our motives, we, deal, we look at our failures, we compare ourselves with someone else and say, I'm not as bad or I'm not as horrible or I'm not as whatever else it might be. And we don't believe that he, that he will be a God that will, will uh, take us as we are. Instinctively, we understand that we can't be loved completely unless we're known completely. It isn't until we're fully known that we're fully loved. So at the same time that we ferociously self-protect, because we know where we're wounded, we know the, the, the hot buttons, we know the avenues that if someone goes down there, then they'll discover something about us. So at the same time that we ferociously self-protect, deep within, we long for someone to fight through our defenses, through our pain, past our facades, past the hardness and the pretense, Defined and love who we actually are. That's really what we want. We want to be known. Uh, I was sharing with someone in between services. Our dad died in 2008. He had a, he had a, a disease that was akin to Alzheimer's. It struck his body as well. And uh, so he, he died with dementia. And after we moved to um, Maryland, uh, I would fly down and check on mom and dad, as we all did. We all took care of them. And one day I was with dad, he was lying in bed, he was looking at me, he had these beautiful blue eyes, and I said, do you know who I am? And he said, no. And I said, who do I look like? He said, my son, Michael. I thought, that's good enough for me. See, we, we want to be known. We want to be known for who we are and for where we are valued. So this morning, I want to challenge you to consider God's deep and expansive grace in the story of your life. I want you to consider what it is that drives you to follow this guy named Jesus and to believe that he has a father who delights in you, which the scriptures teach. And I only want to make two points and then sort of bring it home. The first point is this. God didn't send Jesus to make you perfect. He sent him to make you his. Regardless of what you think, the overwhelming testimony of the scriptures is that God came to make you his. Perfect was the Garden of Eden, and mankind fell. Perfect is something that happens with robots. Perfect is a wonderful thing in the right place, but God desired to have relationship with his people. And in spite of the fall in the garden, he sent Jesus 
to bring us to a place where we would be his. At our church, we try to teach and model repentance and faith as a way of life because like every other uh, congregation, ours is filled with a lot of broken people who stumble along the way, including and beginning with me, uh, as, and sometimes lose their way on, on, on the road home, right? Well, John lived in a, in a densely religious region, and there was this warped sense of what it means to be righteous that prevailed over the time uh, with God's people. There had been a time of God's silence. It was the beginning of you know, what we call the New Testament or the New Covenant, and uh, the, the actual teachings of the Old Testament and the law had been, had been replaced by a, a sort of uh, 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 rules that weren't really rules that, uh, that aided the people that made them and shaped them to live out of their lifestyles in spite of the fact that there was a lot of dis, dis, uh, disobedience involved while at the same time being in power in the churches they knew it and being over the other people that, uh, that were a part of the Jewish society. And it was oppressive. And it was oppressive, and John came into that place, and he preached the, in the wilderness rather than from a pulpit, rather than in the, in the uh, synagogue, and he preached in a, a, a baptism where he called people to be cleansed in the, the, the waters of God's grace. His pulpit was not in church, and he preached the forgiveness of sins rather than perfection. Listen, one day you're going to be perfect. In uh, Philippians 1, 6, Paul says that, uh, that Christ is, is perfecting us, that he's completing us until the day of salvation. But this isn't the time for perfect. The garden teaches us that right now we can't handle perfect. Go, hey, perfect goes to our heads. Perfect tells me that I've got it all together. Perfect tells me that the gospel is great, but if I just follow the rules and the disciplines that I have, I'll be fine. Per perfection doesn't need Jesus. Perfection doesn't love because perfection is all about me. There's no room for those things there. So for now, we live by faith, believing that everything we need for the Father's delight is found in Jesus, not me, not in how good I am, not in how obedient I am, not in how people see me a certain way or perceive me, not in any of those things. My righteousness is in Jesus alone. I can't do it. Can you accept the reality of your brokenness? Or do you live in the constant anxiety of trying to expunge your record? That's what happened with Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, was, a, was a, a monk. He was a translator. And, and he was plagued by guilt all the time. Every single sin he committed, he felt like he had to go to his confessor, go to his confessor and share his evil thoughts and stuff like that. He'd have himself beaten. He'd crawl on, he'd crawl on his bare knees on steps up the, uh, whatever the building was, the Wittenberg Castle. And, and it got to where his confessors didn't want to have anything to do with him because all he cared about was his own perfection. He wasn't concerned about pleasing God. He was concerned about not being perfect anymore. And it wasn't until he saw in Habakkuk 2 that the righteous will live by faith that he realized that he knew a lot of things about the Bible, but he didn't know the God of the Bible. He didn't know Jesus because he didn't live by faith. He lived by his own works. That's what perfect does. And that's why I love that what... What Jesus says to Peter in the upper room in Luke 22, when uh, Peter has just said, you know, 
Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight for you. I'll go to the death with you. I'll go to the cross with you. And of course, he didn't realize, but a few hours later, he'd be saying, no, I never met the guy. Don't have anything to do with him. That kind of thing. He's a wacko, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and Jesus looks at him in the middle of his pronouncements, and he says, Peter, Satan has sought to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you so that when you turn back, you may encourage the brothers. In other words, he said, it will never be out of your braggadocia that you do anything in the world. It will always be out of your brokenness because that's who you really are. Can you accept the reality of your brokenness or do you live in constant anxiety trying to expunge your record? Friend, if the answer is yes, that's all about you. It isn't about Jesus. It isn't about true righteousness. It's about you. We bear our wounds, don't we? We carry regrets and unfinished business. We have said things that we wish we had never said and done things, made decisions we wish we could take back. But this version of ourselves, who you actually are, what you see when no one else sees you, is who Jesus died for. Can you accept that? The second point I want to make is that the gospel is always about how it begins, and it always begins now. The gospel is always about how it begins, and it always begins now. Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel. I know what it's like to feel like we are forever marked with something. To live with our regrets, to look back on that time in college or in high school or whenever and say, how did I fall into that? How did I do that? What was happening inside of me? We all carry our regrets. But the gospel isn't about the past. I, I, I wanted to tell the Balboa story. What's funny about that picture is that a few months ago, one of the pastors, a younger pastor in our denomination, I'm kind of an old guy in our denomination, he decided that he wanted us all to make trading cards with pictures that told our story. And I wanted that picture on my trading card. And what you do is you send them, to, you, 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 uh, you know, uh, download them to Tops that makes the, the sports trading cards. So you say things about yourself, you do a picture. And when we were at our general assembly, we all traded them. So I did mine in time and got it. And I get an email from them saying that they weren't going to make a card for me with that picture. So the picture. That's why that picture's big, because I blew it up. And it was the one I was going to do, but they said it was inappropriate. And I'm like, what? I didn't, so, I, so they left the number. I called the number, and they said, yeah, we think it was inappropriate. And I said, well, why is it inappropriate? Is it because those girls are pretending to smoke pot? And he said, yes, that's probably why we thought it was inappropriate. And I said, you know that happened in 1973. They said, it doesn't matter. We think it's inappropriate. And I said, and you know, I am a minister. I said, yeah, we don't, we don't think you do it. I said, you know, it's legal in California now. <laughs> Didn't work. I know what it's like to live with regrets and to feel like uh, I'll never get past them. And that, too, is about me. And so Mark begins, and he hearkens to creation, the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
John 1. If anyone is found to be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Even the passage in verse 4 where it says that John appeared, it's not the normal word for appear in the Greek. It's a word that means was created. John became, John was made for this message. And the message was that you can be new. There was a new thing happening here. And uh, he appeared it. Now, the idea of, of starting fresh, the idea of a new start with God violates our instincts, doesn't it? We don't believe it. It's why the prodigal didn't believe that his father would take him in. It's why the prodigal believed that if he could be a servant in his father's household, that would be good. It's why the prodigal believed that there wouldn't be a house, a room left for him. You know, whenever we go back home, even no matter how long we've been married, we always go to our room where our parents had our room, that kind of thing. He had no paradigm for a new beginning, only the end. The end of their relationship as it had been. The end of privilege, the end of residence in his father's house. We always gravitate towards the crumbs. This is the orientation we have without grace. But one of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately. It's used 82 times in the scriptures and 36 of them are used in the gospel of Mark. Immediately, Jesus saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending upon him that was in in his baptism. Immediately, the men left their nets and followed Jesus after he said, follow me. Immediately, the leprosy left a man and he was made clean. Immediately, Jesus perceived the spirit of his questioners who were trying to trap him. Immediately, a man took up his bed and walked and were, and, were, and all were amazed and glorified God. Immediately, a woman's flow of blood dried up. Immediately, after walking on the water and his disciples were terrified, Jesus said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And what immediately means here is now, today. Shame and unresolved guilt imprison us in the past, but the gospel is about now. Immediately people showed up. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of sin and death has set us, uh, the, the law of the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, you will be with me in paradise. We think about then. We think about what we've done. We look back and we count our record. Jesus never did that. Jesus didn't go to someone and heal them and say, well, what's your lifestyle been about? Jesus didn't go to them and say, yeah, you know what? I knew the conversation you had two years ago with that person. Maybe that's why they don't like you anymore. They come to him in need. They say, have mercy on me. They recognize that they need him, and he would heal them. And as people caught wind of John's message, they believed it. And something extraordinary happened. Suddenly, no one cared whether they were insiders or outsiders. What they heard was that their sins could be forgiven. And as one, they came out of hiding. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that, you know, he has this this tremendous um, treatise on the resurrection. And he says something really profound. I think it's in verse 7, but I could be wrong. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are still in our sins and have not been forgiven. When people ask me what is most dear to my faith, I say, the forgiveness of sins blows me away. 
David Brooks, who is an op-ed writer for the New York Times, a uh, uh, brilliant guy, has written some amazing books. He, he wrote this article on inspiration, and he says, when people are inspired, they are willing to take a daring lark towards something truly great. They embrace the craggy fierceness of the truth. This group of people, who is this group of people? Mark says, all Jerusalem and the entire Judean countryside, everybody, Everybody who had been oppressed by the message that you're not good enough for God. Everybody who had been convinced that they would never measure up to other church people. Everybody who were dying and drowning in their guilt and their shame and wondering if their secret got out, if anybody would accept them. Everybody came because they heard that their sins could be forgiven. They stopped believing the lie that they were condemned to live in perpetual hiding and shame. They embraced the craggy fierceness of the truth. There is this amazing passage in 1 Samuel 22 where David, who is the king to be, he's the heir apparent to Saul's throne in Israel. Saul's son, he's not Saul's blood, so Saul's son is not going to do it. David is wildly popular. He's best friends with one of Saul's sons. And Saul is so jealous at what David has done. He slew Goliath. The people praise him for killing the Philistines and stuff like that. That that Saul decides he's going to kill him. And he goes after him with the entire Israelite army. They go after him. They chase him down. And he goes from hiding to hiding, running to running. And he finds himself in a cave in a town called Adullam. And he's in this cave. And something crazy happens while he's there. Word gets out that he's there. And 1 Samuel 22, 2 says, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. That group of men became his closest army and served him when he became king. You see, there's something about brokenness that when one person breaks out, whether it's like the Me Too movement Or something when somebody says, this has happened to me, that others say, I feel safe. So if you can buy into the fact that God really isn't repulsed by you or your sin, like you might be, which you know is arrogant, which is the arrogance of saying, I should be better. I should be holier. I'm not like her. I can't believe I did that. If you can buy into the fact that God isn't repulsed by you or waiting for you to fix what you've broken or make yourself perfect, and if you can get over yourself a little bit, and I say that respectfully, And the fact that you will never be able to fix your past entirely. Then maybe you were nearer to the beginning than you thought. Now. Today. Maybe you are beginning to believe something wildly good about the gospel that you didn't know to be true. I tell a story about this couple in the book. And I'm really not saying this to get you to buy the book. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, one day, 
this young couple uh, came into the office. Uh, they were in high school. They had just gotten out of high school. Her parents came. They were members of our church, as she was. The young man wasn't. Great young couple, sweet family, pillars in our church. You know, they've been involved in everything. And, of course, you know that when someone comes in, they're, they're there to tell you one thing. They sit down, and they, they said, we, need, we want to let you know that we're, that we're pregnant. And the mom was really dying. And I said, man, I can't wait to baptize that baby. And I looked at the mom, and I thought, hmm, celebrated too soon. And, uh, and so we started talking. And, uh, and we agreed to, for me to meet with them and just talk marriage, not, not especially meeting that they should get married, but let's see what that means. And we met for about six months. And one day they came into the office and they said, what do we do when I start to show? And I said, well, why don't you tell your story to the church? And they were like, no way. And I said, okay, that's fine. But if you want to, you can do that. And uh, a few weeks later, they came into the office and they said, we want to tell you two things. The first one they showed me the ring. So he gave her the rock. They decided to get married, which was really cool. And the second one was they said, we want to tell our story, which was really great. And they did. They came before our church. They told what was going on. Uh, there wasn't a drop. Before that, they met with our elders, and our elders started confessing their stuff. And, uh, and, and they realized that they were safe. And uh, the whole place is weeping. We pray over them. We lay hands on them. And they got married in a little wedding in our chapel, and they didn't know that when they, while they were getting married, um, the two small groups that they were part of, the moms and dads and the, 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 the young couple, had prepared both, uh, in one room, uh, both uh, a baby shower and a wedding reception. And uh, we finished the wedding, and they walk out, and we go into this room. There are like 150 people waiting to celebrate them and to tell them that, uh, that they love them. And, and even, even more, now he's a flyer for the Marines and training. They have three children. They're just, uh, just one of our favorite couples. A few months after that, one of our counselors came to the office, and she said, um, I want to tell you the best story you'll hear all year. I said, okay, I'd love to hear it. And um, she begins by saying uh, a, a young woman came into the office um, who, who was raped in the workplace. And, I'm, you know, I didn't think it was a very good story so far. And uh, she said she had told her, her boyfriend, she told her parents, and she wanted to tell her. And uh, the counselor said, well, why, why uh, did you feel you could talk with me? And she said, uh, I was in church the day that couple stood before the church. And I realize this is a safe place. You see, there's something about when people come out of hiding and say, I don't really care what anybody thinks because I need Jesus, that the world takes notice. The wilderness was harsh country back in those days, as I suspect it is today. It had wild animals. Uh, there was nothing attractive about it. It had jagged rocks. It had dangerous precipices. It had heat. It had cracked surfaces. And when one was in the wilderness, they were kind of alone. They were kind of isolated. They had no control, and they were anything but safe. But when one goes into the river, when one gets through the wilderness and goes into the river, uh, it is as though the wilderness is gone. 
And, that, and, and that's sort of the point, that John was calling people to come out of the oppressiveness of their religious expression, out of their fears, out of the wilderness of doubt and shame and, 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 and the chaos of false guilt to the cool waters of the gospel where there's healing, away from the dread, away from the discomfort to where there's healing. And beautifully, for our sakes, Jesus went in the opposite direction. One of those immediately's in the gospel of of Mark occurred right after he was baptized when the Spirit of God drove him uh, out of the Jordan River and into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. From the coolness of the river to the heat of the desert, from the sweet affirmation of his father to Satan's deceit, from the safety of the crowd to the isolation of temptation where the danger was, where we often fail and fall and lose our way to sort of and, and die a thousand deaths wondering if God still likes us, filled with dread and guilt and sorrow and fear. And Jesus did this as a precursor to the torment that he would experience when he would go to the cross on our behalf. Part of the beauty of the gospel is that God never says that we're okay in our sin. He never says, eh, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. He doesn't do that. That's not what this is about. He doesn't excuse the inexcusable. He doesn't look the other way. So don't you. Don't let fear drive you into hiding and pretense. Don't let unresolved guilt cause you to become a monster like it does me when I don't deal with it. Because you know what it does. It demolishes trust. It thwarts intimacy. It breeds secrecy. It mauls relationship. It hurts those you love and it hurts you. But I'm not telling you something you don't already know, am I? The gospel teaches that Jesus took on himself the worst version of our lives, entered into our brokenness in love to make us safe by dying on the cross, safe from the tyranny of regret, safe from the power of condemnation, safe from the prison of shame. He took it all upon himself to make us his, to do something wildly redemptive and beautiful with our lives. This past week, I got to, since we came up, out at the head of heading of an email I sent out, I put a shot in the dark because a couple of years ago I read an article about an artist named Ted Meyer who lives in the Pasadena area. Meyer was written up in the L.A. Times and in the New York Times because he has this unique art where he meets with people who have had terrible bodily injuries like scars. Um, legs missing from war, uh, limbs missing from war, uh, heart surgery scars, uh, all kinds of things, uh, and all kinds of surgeries. And what he does is he takes a he takes a, a paint and he rolls it on the scars, and then he takes an exquisite canvas and he puts it on the paint, and he pulls it from the paint and he makes a, a beautiful landscape, or just frames the scar. And his art is exquisite because it shouts redemption. And I got to meet him the other day. I went and sat down with him in his studio, which is also his house. He said, I'm an atheist. I thought he might be here today. I'm an atheist. You know, what are you doing here? And I said, because what you do is so wildly redemptive that it's just like the gospel. 
And it's so beautiful. But you have to give it up. You have to surrender the notion that perfection matters more than redemption. I mean, isn't that what we learned from this prodigal? When he finally gave up and he did things on God's terms. When he surrendered what he knew he never really deserved. When the anger gave way to longing and the pride was gone and he had nothing to offer to friends who loved him as long as he could finance their lifestyle, when he began to wonder as he fed with the pigs in the sty and think, is this the end of my life? And then one day, maybe it was early in the morning before he was going to do more backbreaking work, or maybe it was the end of the day when he could barely lift his head to pray or to think, and one day, somehow, he remembered his dad and how his dad treated his servants. And he thought, that's where I need to go. Because I'm better off a servant of my dad than the Lord of my own miserable domain. And I would rather him feed me and care for me like he does the servants in his house than what I have here. And he went home only to discover that his dad was waiting for him and that his dad totally disagreed with him that he didn't agree that all he should do is eat with the servants, but that he should dine and celebrate and feast with him as a son. Because symbolically and literally, Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, endured the cross where the canvas of his perfect, righteous, and beautiful nature was splattered with his own blood by God's holy rage with sin, So that by faith, as in baptism, we may plunge with him into the dark, dangerous waters of death and emerge in his forgiveness and the delight of his Father who makes us new people, new masterpieces, people with scars and bruises, people that will go into heaven struggling every step of the way, but people who are wildly loved and redeemed through his son, our names eternally etched on Christ's hands. And now he cries, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink from the living waters. Jesus came because the Father loves you as you actually are, not as you think you should be. And that realization is liberating because it's the gospel. Amen.